I'm Rick O'Shea, the literary curator of the UCD Festival, and I'd like to welcome you to this, the second virtual edition of UCD Festival at Home for 2021. The UCD Festival is unique and award-winning, one where the global UCD community of students, alumni, future students, and also the wider general public join us for free online events. For the second year, we're not on campus, but instead where you are bringing you all of the inspiring, engaging, and informative activities of the regular festival here for our digital and worldwide festival audience to enjoy. I'm particularly thrilled to be highlighting the series of UCD Festival at Home Conversations. There are over 20 chats and discussions taking place, and with nearly 100 free virtual and engaging events also running across the weekend, there's something for everyone in the family to enjoy. You can stay up to date on the full UCD Festival at Home program at ucd.ie slash festival. And don't forget, you can join the conversation through the chat function on YouTube or on Twitter using the hashtag UCD Festival. Do get involved. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the event. Hello, I'm Dr. Carr Augustenborg, Environmental Policy Fellow here at University College Dublin and presenter of the Down to Earth Environmental Radio Show on News Talk. And I'm joined today by Dr. Paul Lorenz, the author of Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science. Paul, I've lo I love the way you've merged Charles Dickens there with, with climate science. And I've been really looking forward to our chat because we have a lot of common interests. And I, I found the opening to your book so relatable when you talked about how as an environmental researcher, you often get asked this question, do you think we're going to be okay? And, and how you try and avoid answering it. And I've been completely guilty too at parties of not answering that question because I can clear a room pretty easily when I start to answer. So we will answer that question as part of this conversation. But first, I would really love to know more about your background. So you're a physicist by training with a master's in astronomy who shifted into energy and food and climate change research. So what motivated you to move into those areas when you could be working on something like SpaceX or the Mars rover? Lovely to join you, uh, Cara. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for the introduction with the uh, the book as well. Um, yeah, I was I started off in my master's in astronomy. Uh, so I worked on some telescopes. And my old astronomy lecturer used to say, you know, it's all really fun, but it doesn't really affect the price of fish. You know, and uh, he said, "Oh, you know, this is a wonderful thing." And I, I but I did feel this uh, need to do something more down to earth, something, something, something on the ground. Uh, and so I worked on uh, renewable energy for some time on wind turbines, finding the best positions to put wind turbines. Uh, that was uh, in in New Zealand for my PhD, uh, and then worked in policy making, and, and had quite a sort of broad background in trying to inform policymakers about the science on things like genetically modified organisms, uh, language policy, very, very broad uh, concepts. And uh, after that, I swapped um, the mountains of New Zealand for the flatlands of the Netherlands, uh, where I now work in uh, industrial ecology. And um, industrial ecology is uh, it's quite a young field. It is interdisciplinary, trying to bring in all different ideas of the ways in which interact with the environment, so systems thinking. And this is really where uh, I really felt the, the, the passion uh, to, to continue working and to continue with the communication, because everything we do is so policy-driven. It's so much about quantifying our effects on the planet, having a look at how we can reduce our effects on the planet, what are the different ways in which we can do that. And clearly, when you do that, you know, it just cries out for communication and it cries out for talking about it. And that's one of the things that I, it really drove me sort of to, towards where I am now, which is focusing on getting those research, uh, the, the things that we find out from research out there. 
So The Best of Times, The Worst of Times is the first popular book you've written as a solo author. I know you wrote another book with some colleagues this year, too, on food and sustainability. But what compelled you to make this solo run and, and write a popular climate book? Um, it was the idea. I mean, it's sort of a little bit what you mentioned before, that sort of, oh, God, where are we now? And it's almost a working out of your own uh, your own feelings, but your, also your own science, the research that you do, bringing the research in. I the, the idea for the book, or the reason why this book in particular uh, came about, was because I was listening to I was listening to a lot of audiobooks uh, from environmental authors, but also people who were talking more broadly about the world. So I remember one time I flipped from listening to Stephen Pinker's uh, uh, Enlightenment Now to Naomi Klein's uh, This Changes Everything, and I was thinking, you know, ostensibly they're using the same facts, out with very different conclusions, and I thought that was fascinating. Um, and when you do look at the sort of bulk of popular science books out there you do tend to read these popular science books they have about 90 percent really bad news i think is fair to say you know extinctions climate uh, pollution and then at the end they've got this 10 percent like well here are the solutions these are the things that we can do and i think it leaves readers feeling like they don't really know well, how reasonable is that 10 percent you know how 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 do we fix that um, how do they fit in with other problems? Um, surely these are problems that all interconnect with other things, the economy, the, the way in which we live our lives, our behavior, these sorts of things. So what I really wanted to do was take apart the more pessimistic view, sort of that 90%, and do that hopeful view in paired chapters and go through the different systems which are failing us. There's, there's the systems that could cause severe, uh, irrevocable um, environmental harm. So this is the thing that was really unique about your book, which I've been reading this week, um, the way you've got these chapters that that take a specific topic like population or energy or food or climate change and economics, and you have a chapter on what you call pessimism or what I call reality, uh, and then you have a chapter on what you call hope or what, what I saw as actually solutions, um, and, and you you kind of go back and forth. But, but as a science communicator, and you bring this up, you know, just earlier that um, a lot of times I find the minute you present any kind of pessimism or reality on the science of climate change, uh, you lose the reader or the listener because they're so overwhelmed by how bad the situation is that then when you present the solutions, they can't even register because they're still thinking about how much more awful it was than they expected. Is this a mm. risk in how you designed your book? Yes, I, that, that that is a risk, and that's why I said to people, you know, who are going to read the book, uh, don't, you know, don't go to bed just reading the pessimism chapter. You know, make sure that you get onto the optimism chapter before you fall asleep. If you're, if you're anybody like me who reads before going to sleep, you know, make sure that you get onto the optimism chapter. But I hope that the structure is little mini cliffhangers of, you know, yeah, you this is this is reality. I mean, this is fairly brutal. I'm not going to sugarcoat it here. Um, some of the situations that we find ourselves in uh, but the, the optimism is it is it is it true the hope is a true hope you know these things are available these solutions are available to us these technologies these social uh, changes that we're seeing and that these changes can be extremely rapid you know we, we are seeing rapid changes in the climate but we are seeing rapid changes in society too and we often underestimate both of those things we underestimate how hard climate is going to hit and we also underestimate how quickly society can change in response. So I hope that feeling of that there still is everything to play for, that there is 
a very dynamic world that we still live in and that we are still in control of the next bit of warming, the next bit of uh, impacts. You know, we still have the ability to uh, make uh, um, as much effort as possible. Every little uh, change matters. So that's what I'm hoping that uh, uh, people will bring out. So it's not just that sort of uh, doom and gloom uh, and feeling of, well, this is all out of our hands. Yeah, let's take one topic that you you cover in the book quite extensively, the idea of food and agriculture. And it's so relevant Mm. to us here in Ireland, because as you know, agriculture makes up a third of our our emissions uh, by sector. And that's quite unusual. You know, most developed countries, it, it tends to be energy is the predominant emitter of greenhouse gases. So you say that our current modern food system is the best way to bring our ecosystem to its knees. So how bad is our current modern food system really and what is the solution in your eyes well yeah this and this is from the pessimism chapter and as you said you know the pessimism chapter really is defined by us continuing as we are today you know we're always in change but us continue so what does it look like today Uh, it looks like every single sort of panic button that you could push in terms of the nutrients that we put into the waterways uh, waterways the uh, intensive agriculture in many places in the world the uh, carbon emissions from the food system the soil degradation the deforestry to make way for more and more uh, animal agriculture um, and it's fair to say that it's it's it, it's it's generally animal agriculture where the, the largest burden uh, of the environment is felt we have a, but we we use about 50% of all uh, habitable land uh, for agriculture uh, and that's about sort of 35% of all ice-free land around the world we use for animal agriculture. Um, so it's a huge amount of space that we we use. And the, the fact of the matter is we, we we actually need that space. We need that space for dealing with our environmental problems, for rewilding, for greater biodiversity, for greater carbon sequestration. And we do research on this looking at, well, what is the do see a plant-based shift towards plant-based diets, uh, away from animal agriculture. And animal agriculture starts to uh, shrink maybe as a proportion of our total uh, production. Uh, And we see huge, huge impacts um, over time. And you can see, actually, we can buy ourselves about three to four years of carbon emissions if we use that land sensibly in terms of rewilding and drawing down uh, carbon. Um, So there's an awful lot to talk about in terms of where we go forwards, obviously reducing that uh, animal agriculture is part of it. But whenever you look look at any of the academic models, they suggest three different things that we need. We need um, to have plant-based diets, to really drastically cut food uh, waste and food loss, and to improve yields. And actually, the first two, the loss and the waste and the animal agriculture, are by far the biggest. And they're also the ones we have most control over. Um, as a society, there's a social interventions that we can do. And you then, you know, the typical argument then comes back, well, how reasonable is it that, you know, we could possibly reduce our intake of meat? People always say, well, I'm not going to give that up, you know, mm-hmm. uh, or what's the likelihood of somebody else giving that up? But in my experience, people are far more likely to say other people won't give it up than they will. I see people all around me changing all the time. Uh, and I think we're fairly close to a tipping point in plant-based diets, if not now, uh, certainly in the next decade or so. What's your own diet? What's Are my own diet? My own diet vegan? is, yeah, well, I, I ate meat uh, for about 20 years uh, and then I went vegetarian and I struggle to narrow out the eggs, I have to say, <laughs> but uh, mm-hmm. focus on sort of the, the big hitters, the, uh, the, the, uh, the cattle industry, beef, uh, meat. Uh, and so my own diet is, uh, is vegetarian. How about yourself? 
Uh, I tried being vegan for two months and I went severely anemic. Yeah, this was doing like uh, a really good vegan cooking course and everything. So I'm back actually on meat and dairy uh, in an effort to keep my iron levels higher. But I, I have incorporated more vegan recipes into my diet as a result of that, you know, two months in intensive thing. But uh, yeah, I struggle. I find it hard. And I think a lot of people do. To It's certainly hard to go from kind of zero to hero, you know. Yeah. And I think, I think that's the thing that we have to bear in mind is that this is not about jumping straight to vegan. I mean, we, 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 we did it ourselves because it's, it's the thing that you do, you know, but actually maybe what we should be asking each other is, you know, well, you know, how much have you cut down or how, how have you had to expand? You know, it's more, if, if you have 50% of people uh, cutting out 50% of their meat, you're already down 25% yeah. on total. That's a huge amount of land. Like, so, yeah. um, that's really where we should be looking. And I, I certainly see a lot of hope there with a lot of the, you know, um, uh, the sort of industry uh, data and the market data showing that people are cutting down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard. I think you're right, though. It's about reducing, encouraging people to just rethink their diets even a little bit, you know, can make a can make a big difference. But it's good to hear that you've managed to get almost everything out. Um, and there was some interesting. Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say there was some interesting uh, research the other day. They did. They looked at um, uh, plant-based diets versus a keto diet. I think it was a keto mm-hmm. diet. And this was a small sample size, but they found that plant-based diets, uh, you lose more weight because uh, you actually have you know, the volume that you eat is so much more. Uh, and the, cal- the calorie density is lower. So actually, the people who did the, the controlled trials, um, they lost more weight if they were uh, plant-based um, diets rather than the, um, the meat-based diet. And the way I always think about it is that also just means that you can have two desserts. So my way of doing it is moving towards plant-based diets and then having two desserts. So, I mean, think of it how you will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I found I I lost weight because I couldn't find anything good to eat. And I couldn't go out to eat anymore oh. because there was nothing good to eat in the restaurants. So. Well, hey, oh, sorry. I was, uh, yeah, just, but on that, on that, like that's that's where um, the rubber hits the road between individual change and systems change. You know, because you couldn't find anything in the restaurant because it's been a very long time of heavy meat based diets, and you always go mm-hmm. in and you get that one option, one vegetarian option. You're like, oh, we're going to go back there and have that again. Things are changing massively. And it's more about exploration. And people are like seeing really interesting options on menus now, really interesting options in shops. And so it just makes it easier. So the systems respond to the individual change and the individuals change to the system change. And so this idea that we can't do anything is for the birds. It's something we we need to steer, steer away from. Yeah, and I like the way you emphasize that in your book because I find uh, working with civil society and with government, I think there's this constant conflict between groups that are pushing for individual change and groups that are pushing for system change, and they think that they they can't both be right. But but you mentioned in your book that they are both right, that we need both of them. And and you credit civil society, rightly so, movements like Fridays for Future and Extinction Rebellion for bringing the climate crisis more political attention. So now that that attention is here, and I think many political parties, not just the Green Party, appear to be agreeing for the need to take action, what do you think the next step is? The next step is joining these aspirational targets that governments are talking about all the time to actual policies. What is actually going to be done? They We've had a very long time where 
to make roadmaps, to figure out energy transitions, to figure out food transitions, uh, to figure out how to make that a just transition. You know, in Ireland, the conversation is only just really getting started between the huge gulf between where we need to go for the environment uh, that scientists are aware of and farmers are aware of. And farmers can't be left in the lurch, you know, and people can't be left in the, in the lurch for this transition. So the next stage is actually joining these aspirations up with actual policies, policies that will take care of the people, not necessarily, you know, vested interests and companies that may be not having the, 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 the best in mind for the planet, um, big oil companies here and some of the big ag companies. And they need to actually sort of start involving the people in this process in citizens' assemblies and these sorts of things. So I think that's the next step. I mean, we saw the marches and we saw the calls for change from Fridays for the Future, from Extinction Rebellion. And they need to, uh, the governments need to make good on that. And I think the second the second part of that is the judiciary uh, and legal um proceedings, because I think legal cases are a really strong tipping point for the future. If you can hold com countries to their targets uh, in a legal, uh, legally binding framework, and this, just this sort of, well, it's the opinion of the other countries whether we make this or not. I should be clear, Paris and all these targets, they don't mean that much. You know, they're not really being taken, uh, they're not going to be taken to courts, countries, uh, if they don't uh, hit these targets, at least not all of them. Um, and these are really just sort of aspirational sort of net zero targets. So this is why I'm saying we need to be joining that up to uh, legal proceedings and we need to join it up to policies on the ground. Yeah, so you talk about the need for carbon pricing in your book, and and several of those civil society organizations who champion climate action are actually opposed to carbon taxation because of their social justice concerns. So is there a risk that, that these disagreements on how to achieve climate action will actually stop us from doing anything, and, and what's the answer to resolving those kind of disagreements? Yeah, I, I, it's hard to say whether... You can easily see a situation where people are pushing for carbon taxes, but they're asking for that to be progressively distributed. As with all these things, every single concept that you look in climate or in biodiversity or in any of the climate issues, these are everything problems. So these, these, these relate to the way in which we live our lives, labor, our families, everything. And mm -hmm. whenever you get that, you're going to be political. And so every concept that a scientist comes up with or any concept that we, an economist comes up with is always going to be politicized in some way. And that's the same thing with carbon tax. Now, a carbon tax could be something wonderful. It could be progressively distributed. It could be uh, raise revenue for UBI, uh, UB, sorry, I should say universal basic income or universal basic services so that individuals uh, get to, we try to decouple consumption uh, from well-being. All these sorts of things could be wonderful, but it could go down the other horrible route as well, whereby the taxes are, are taken and they're not redistributed. And it certainly goes back into the inequality that we see today. See, in net zero plans, you know, what does net zero mean? Net zero means that we get to net zero in uh, carbon emissions or in uh, greenhouse gas emissions, depending on the, the target. That means that you're emitting some and you're still drawing some down. So you're taking some uh, some out of the atmosphere, either through forestry or through, um, you know, machines. And you can get to net zero in multiple different ways. You could get to net zero by making massive societal changes and getting to true zero. That, that's a net zero and maybe mopping up a little bit with some trees. Or you could continue to emit and continue to hope that you're going to be able to draw out carbon from the atmosphere using machines in the future. Uh, or mm -hmm. you're going to 
pay other countries to do it. There's so many different ways. So what I mean to say is all of these terms can be politicized. Is there a danger that um, this stalls things? I'm not sure, sure. I think some of these things, they will eventually happen. And the petitioning of certain groups to make that more just will hopefully bear out in, in the results of, of those policies, you know, so carbon tax or things like this. I think that there would some people argue that then it's not even possible to get one because of the political impasse of the, the carbon tax. But I'm not so sure. I think if you came out with the right plan, you could get bored with it. I think it's, it's possible. Yeah. Uh, climate literature is becoming quite popular. I mean, Bill Gates even jumped on the, on the trend this year, too. And, and you know, you mentioned how this is an everything problem. And a lot of the things that are in your book reminded me a lot of Naomi Klein's This Changes Everything and Paul Hawkins' Project uh, Drawdown book. Um, so how do you see your book as being different to some of the other literature on climate change that's come out in recent years? I think that my book is, you need to know, it's, it's, I think it's far more embedded uh, in, the, in the research. Uh, in the, not that those books don't have research. They have, certainly have plenty of research. Um, but uh, Naomi Klein comes from a very specific lens, uh, whereas mm. I, I'm trying to reach uh, perhaps people from across uh, the political spectrum, uh, but also uh, with the research and what, what the, the research really tells us about where we're at right now. I think the Project Drawdown is a lovely book, but it's quite academic. I don't know what you thought, but it's, you, you know, you go, you go page by page. It's not really storytelling as such. It's more, well, yeah. here's the details on this and let's move on to the next one. Here's the details on that. Um, so I wanted to combine the storytelling, uh, the uh, historical precedents that we have for large scale change with the scientific information, with the situation that we're in now, not just the natural science, but also the social science. Like when do we see such big changes? Are they sort of possible in human society? Those sorts of things. Yeah, I, I was really glad that you started by talking about population because when I'm speaking publicly, uh, a lot of times, you know, the first question from the audience is, well, isn't this all about just, you know, reducing our population? There's too many people. So it was it was great to kind of get that myth busting right at the start. And then you also really um, emphasize at the end the, the role of women and how important, um, you know, more gender equality is in climate action. So uh, that was a big surprise to me. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's underappreciated. I think... But every single comment that you see online, you're right, you see population. And it just really isn't the issue. We are uh, shrinking in large areas of the world right now. We'll only be growing for a very short amount of time. And if you really want to do something about it, then it's about women's autonomy over their own uh, their own future, their ability to plan their lives. And more so than anything else, it doesn't correlate that well with income, but it does correlate pretty well, very well with uh, women's autonomy. And if you actually make those differences, if you you know empower women, uh, then we'll see even lower population by the middle of the century. So I'm not so I'm not concerned about population at all. And certainly, when you look at all of the academic literature, uh, when you do what's called the breakdown or the decomposition of the different factors going into the future, which will contribute to climate change consumption. And already, you know, uh, the top 10% of people emit 50% of all the emissions, you know, and 1% mm -hmm. uh, of the total population take half of the flights in the world. You know, this is, this is where we need to be looking and to be concentrating on population is, uh, is a little bit moot at this point.
Yeah, yeah. So I always worry uh, about the mental health of people working on the front lines of the climate and biodiversity emergency, because a lot of them are just watching and measuring the disaster as it unfolds and sometimes feeling quite hopeless as the situation worsens. So what keeps you going and keeps you hopeful personally uh, as you work in this area? Yeah, yeah, we feel we both obviously both get that a, a lot when you read those papers, and then you, you you get up from the 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 chair and you just think, wow, what what on earth? And I think what on earth being <laughs> being the operative thing. But I think uh, I think for, for me, coping with it is is working working on it. Uh, you know, I, I couldn't imagine working on anything else, and so that is a form of coping is just continuing to work on it. Uh, you know, twenty twenty four seven, but as as much as I possibly can, um, and. That is a form of coping. I think also always keeping in mind that you just got to keep uh, fighting for it. Every single little bit matters. Every single little change matters. Every little impact that you could have on somebody else uh, matters. So a lot of people always ask, what's the best thing I can do? Uh, what's the, what, what should I be doing? Well, aside from looking inwards and navigating your own feelings about you know, cutting down meat or flying or, or whatever you can look at. I mean, th- those are the two main ones. Uh, then also talking to people and making that emotional connection about how you feel about it, because that's how the social change happens. And so on my really dark days, I'm reading the scientific literature and thinking, wow, this is going much faster than uh, than we thought. And on my more happy days, I see the networks of people you know talking about it and actually starting to get to grips with what this means for the, for their lives. Because in the in the climate sort of movement and in climate groups, you know they represent maybe 20 percent of the people, but you've got eighty percent in the middle who are they're concerned. They know deep down something's not right. Uh, I think mm-hmm. um, at least in, in the people around me, uh, it's bubbling underneath, but they don't really mm-hmm. know what it's going to take, and they don't really. It's sort of like oh, I don't want to look at it almost, uh, and that's where the focus has to be. I think. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, when you're on social media, you only hear the people complaining all the time. You don't hear the people that actually are engaged and have taken on board your message, but they're, you know, maybe not tweeting at you or something, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed reading so many solutions to all of our environmental challenges. And I like the way you brought in not only the climate challenge, but water quality and air pollution and biodiversity in your book. But but you say that the big barriers are with respect to political and social change and that none of the solutions can actually happen at the speed and depth necessary in our current system of production, consumption and power. So with that in mind, I'm going to go back to that uncomfortable question that we both get asked at parties. Mm-hmm. Are we going okay when it comes to addressing the climate crisis <laughs> and uh, you know and the, the answer we well, had to read the book uh, but i think uh, <laughs> the answer the answer uh, i would always give is um no and yes i mean no we're not okay you know in many ways we failed miserably uh, for a very long time and that has impacted millions of people it's very sobering to go online. Carbon Brief, uh, Brief has a lovely website. I say lovely; it's 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 awful, but it's it's amazingly presented, where they show all of the extreme events around the world, and you can click on the different locations and see the uh, connection with climate change was. These are all peer-reviewed scientific articles connecting the human harms and the human tragedies to climate change. And in in that sense, you know, we failed for a very long time, but you know, there is always that hope for the future and the fact that actually i didn't even though they're just targets i never thought that i would see projections at sort of three degrees by the end of this century 
you know, I, 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 I think thought that it would be higher than that even. Um, and it's not good enough. Nothing that we're doing is good enough. And actually, the, the issues in cl- the, the climate changes are, are moving faster than we thought. Systemic, scientists have systemically underestimated the climate impacts and when they will hit with different uh, t- temperature increases. But you can see very clearly in the data some countries decarbonizing. Not fast enough, but it is starting to happen. And so I keep holding out that hope for that rapid sort of exponential change that you see societies. You know, we, we create our problems exponentially and sometimes we can fix them exponentially too. So I keep holding out that uh, that that hope. So, you know, will we be okay? No. Um, in the long term, if we do what needs to be done, it's a better world uh, for many, many people. Uh, and so... I mean, the other argue, uh, the other way to talk about this is that it's been a, it's not been okay for a lot of people for a very long time, even before climate change. And if we are to fix some of these climate change and these environmental problems, we're going to have to fix our inequality uh, and our societies too, and poverty and all the sorts of other issues that we see around the world, uh, women's autonomy, all those sorts of things. Um, and so, the other way to answer that is yes, we will be much better, uh, hopefully, if we can move fast enough. So, if you were prime minister tomorrow, what's the first thing you would do? Oh, <laughs> well, I mean, that's a, I would, uh, I would, I think you've got to try and uh, find ways in which to approach difficult subjects without poli- overly politicizing them and getting deadlock. And I really, really like the uh, citizens' assemblies for that. Um, they can be used politically too, of course they can, but they tend to broaden out the power base a little bit. And so when you saw the climate assembly in the UK, for example, people were coming up with solutions far beyond where the politics was at. They were saying, let's tax frequent flyers. Let's, let's even consider bans on SUVs. We, we're, not, we're not sure about banning or taxing meat, but it's good if we do stop eating meat. Things that politicians wouldn't even countenance or think about discussing, the Climate mm-hmm. Assembly, which is a group of 60 people around the country um, from all sorts of different backgrounds who've been given some of the information on climate change, um, uh, they, they, they came up with something that was far beyond where the politicians were. And it's not fast enough, but I, I do have trust in that. And, you know, Ireland's got a long history, well, you know, a really successful history in, in assemblies. And so I think that's, that's where I would, go. I would go. I would start bringing assemblies together and start bringing scientists and the public together. Yeah, we had a citizens assembly on climate, not how Ireland could be a climate leader uh, a few years ago. And it was an incredible process even to watch, you know, to get to witness. It was amazing. And now we're pushing for a citizens assembly on biodiversity to have the same effect. But I do think that that has been it was the catalyst for a lot of the climate policies we're seeing in Ireland now. I think it allows it, it gives cover to politicians to move faster, I think. You know, because they say, well, this is a this is a, a democratic process. This is um, a well informed uh, dem- democratic process, uh, and this is what the people want. Uh, and I think that's really that's really important. And so, it's a better uh, represent a better democracy. It's not just about voting once every four years. It's about people getting together and, uh, and making some decisions about what what they would they, what they would like to do and what they would like to see for society. Absolutely. Well, Dr. Paul Berens, author of The Best of Times, The Worst of Times, Futures from the Frontiers of Climate Science. Thank you so much for this fascinating conversation and for your very interesting contribution to my climate literature. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Cara. That was wonderful. Thanks for, thanks for talking with me. Thank you all for watching. And you can join the conversation at hashtag UCD Festival on Twitter.